Verse 11, verse 10. I didn't, I was getting to start to that and we never got to it. We'll go back to it. When devotion is one pointed, devotion, the devotee only seeks security in the self. So what is this one pointed devotion? It means, it means there's no other, there's no other desire but the desire to be free. So you've eliminated all of the secondary uh, non-essential desires. If, if you want moksha, uh, security is, security is, uh, worldly security is non-essential desire. Uh, and relationships, uh, emotional security in a relationship that's non-essential for a for a mumukshu. A mumukshu is a person who only only wants moksha. Uh, a person who uh, wants to be good. Wanting to be good is a non-essential. I want to be free from the idea that I'm bad. Wanting to be recognized. You want your 15 minutes of fame? Huh? <clears throat> wearing, wearing purple hair and tattooing your face and looking like a, a primitive savage from the jungle and walking around the urban areas. Uh, that may get people to pay attention to you for two seconds. But that's a non-essential need. Understand? <laughs> Wanting to be noticed or recognized or whatever. That's non-essential. I want to be free from the feeling of that I'm, uh, I'm unnoticed, that I'm insignificant and unimportant. Attracting attention. People love to attract attention because they feel but they don't pay enough attention to themselves. So this uh, the, a mumukshu is is a is a karma yogi or a jnana yogi that that only wants freedom. So once you're clear, in other words, once you once you have only one a single goal, then 
all, then all the options fall away naturally. The money, sex, power, they, they become unimportant. They will be pulled. Uh, Ishra will be testing you. They'll put little things in your way to try to divert you. Ishwar is a tricky force. Huh? But if you're clear, you won't go for it. You won't waste your time. Because you know you're going to have to come back to uh, Ishwar in the long run. Anyway, so you just say, well, I'm wasting my time getting involved in this setting up a business, making a family and having kids, all that sort of thing. Understand? And and you'll you'll manage you'll imagine that you can do them both at the same time. <coughs> this you're multitasking. I'm I'm a multitasker. I can go for moksha and I can go for sex, I can go for money, I can go for I can do it all. Because I'm a modern person. Yeah, it just means you're real rajasic and you have a lot of desires and, and you don't want to let go of anything. You don't have a spirit of renunciation. He said the sign the sign of this of this non-dual devotee, of this mumushu, is somebody who has a has a, a, a an active spirit of renunciation. He or she's looking to get rid of stuff. He's not holding on to stuff and grudgingly let think, letting things go. He's looking for things to throw out because he doesn't. He or she doesn't want his or her life cluttered with a lot of secondary, huh, non-essential uh, priorities. He's only got one priority, and if, if you're just totally focused on that. No matter what happens, you're, you, you, huh? nothing will pull you away from it. It's just it's amazing. Ishwara, well, that, that's a total dedication to Ishwara. And Ishwara will keep you on the path. Ishwara will keep moving you right along. And it'll be easy to let go of stuff because you know what you really want. You don't, you don't go for security because you, you, you want freedom. You think you do. You think that money or a good job will give you freedom. Freedom from what? You'll only be freedom from insecurity. But then a whole bunch of other problems will come up, won't they? Isn't that what happens when you get money in the bank? So, say, look at uh, Jeff Bezos. He, he's worth $150 billion. Right, so and I read a, a a statement by him, an article by him, that says that he he lives ten years ahead. Huh? He's planned his life ten years ahead because he's got bit, he's got a hundred bit one hundred fifty bit. Well, he's got one hundred thirty billion now because he gave thirty billion to twenty thirty five billion to his wife. <laughs> so because he had to get a new wife. He needed a new wife, so he gave her 35, 37 billion. He made her the fourth richest woman in the world, a person in the world, giving her 35 billion now. And he's living 10 years ahead. He's secure. He knows with 100, he can't, for 10 years he can, he can at least, at his level of lifestyle, he could spend 150 billion and still be okay. 
And of course, there'll be many more billions coming in. So he could probably live longer than that. So he's, huh? <laughs> Think about it. These people, they, it says here, what do they do? When, when, you, when you know what you want, when you know you want freedom, then your only security, you know that the only source of security is yourself. You, you don't want to depend upon objects because objects are like crutches. Huh? They're unreliable. Huh? Isn't it? Hanging on to a, a, another person? You, you want another person? Do you want to lean on another person to, to keep yourself emotionally happy? You want to depend upon a person? They're nice and fickle. Huh? Money comes and goes, and people, another person's going to be what? Their, their affections will change. And you only want to depend upon that. You expect them to deliver happiness consistently and steadily every single day of your life till death do us part. You think that's how it works? Well, maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But if you if you uh, if you seek only security in the Lord, then huh, then you're good. And the Lord knows that the Lord is going to take care of you. Krishna says in the Gita, because this is a problem the spiritual people have. They say, well, if I go for God, then then who's going to take care of the, you know, who's going to pay the rent? Right? That's the doubt. So I have to, I have to keep one foot in the world, and then I have to pursue my spirituality. Then, you know, at the same time, I have to go for moksha, but I've got to, you know, tether my camel. Tie up my cow so it doesn't run away. But it, Krishna says in the Gita, the Gita says, it says, with a heart that knows no otherness. In other words, with the understanding that huh, there, that this is a non-dual reality, that everything's benign, that everything's looking at, that Ishwara or the world is looking after me. With that understanding, with a heart that knows no otherness, <coughs> keep your mind on me alone, meaning on yourself alone. And then what does he say? And I will take care of your getting and your keeping. In other words, I'll take care of your, your, world, your life, your worldly life. You don't worry about that. You just look after me and I'll look after you there. And that happens to be a contract. If you trust the Lord, the Lord will take care of you. Everything you need to, every, you'll always have a place to sleep and food to eat and clothes in your body. And, uh, and you, it, it'll, be, it'll be a very interesting life for sure. Because Ishwara doesn't have the same kind of bourgeois <laughs> sensibilities that we do. <laughs> But but uh, you, <laughs> we're so attached to our warm little fuzzy beds and our, our little rituals and routines that we just huh 
We're just cut in this little warm, fuzzy, mid middle class car, you know, cocoon, <laughs> all warm and fuzzy. And we want it like that every day because we can't be comfortable outside of our comfort zone. Huh? But Ishwar will take you outside of your comfort zone, and that's very good because you learn to what? You know, be secure and happy knowing that you're looked after by the Lord and you, you're grateful for whatever the Lord gives you. And that develops this tremendous strength, this tremendous bhakti, and feeds your, huh, feeds your desire for moksha. So he's saying, you know, so when you're seeking, when you, that, that's what he, what he calls a jnani bhakta, not a non-dual bhakta, but a seeker of knowledge, an inquirer. He says, they, 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 uh, that devotee seeks only security in the self. So at that level, when you're at, at oh, well, <laughs> when the, at that level, huh, then that's your duty. That's your dharma. Your dharma is not, not to seek, uh, not to seek security in other, in externals and non-essentials, but to seek security, on, in other words, only seek security in yourself. Yeah. Uh, oh, this, this, we, we can go through this. We've covered it somewhat, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about this, the five stages of devotion. We've already talked about five stages, but he, he presents it in a little different uh, way here. And, uh, Stage one is called Sakama Bhakti. It's praying for stuff. Huh? That's a stage one. Yeah. That's what I said with spiritual materialism. You, yeah. you, you want to get the edge. See? Yeah, everybody's out there praying for stuff. Right? Everybody wants a, a beautiful companion and lots of money in the bank and you know, good job, all that. Everybody wants the same stuff. And so to get the edge, the spiritual people include Ishwara because they know Ishwara's, uh, Ishwara's the one that delivers the stuff, so they want to get on Ishwara's good side. So they worship Ishwara and ask Ishwara for the stuff. You know, now, that's pretty cynical, isn't it? I mean, come on. You know, that's that's pretty chintzy, but at the same time, it's good, isn't it? Because at least you're uh, acknowledging where the stuff comes from. <laughs> <Yeah. Huh? coughs> I want you don't want you don't want Ishwara there. You want Ishwara's stuff. That's kind of insulting, isn't it? I marry you because you have a big house, <laughs> right? I love you a lot. Of course, I wouldn't love you as much if you didn't have a big house and I can live for free. But I do love you a lot. Huh? Huh? So that's called Sakama Bhakti. That's Bhakti, your devotion to Ishwar, with desires. I'm going to keep my desires and I'm going to love Ishwar. So have your cake and eat it too. And then there's a stage two. It's called Nishkama Bhakti. I, I have I have a sub uh, in the subtitle a subtopic. I call it a breeding ground for saints. You want to be a saint? 
You want to be a saint? You feel like you're a sinner? You'd like to be a saint? Well, this is how you get to be a saint, okay? Anybody here want to be a saint? Everybody think you're so good and holy and pure and, huh? You want that? Well, this is how you do it, okay? What do you do? You stand up to your desires. You prove to the world, what? That you don't need sex, money, power. You're too pure. You're too good. Why? Because you resist them. You do like St. Francis. What did St. Francis do? He was a big cheese. He could have slept in a feather bed. Huh? He could have had a feather bed. I went to his, his uh, ashram there in, in Assisi. You know where he slept on? A rock. Have you seen that rock? Like, oh, Jesus Christ, what's wrong with you, fella? You know? <laughs> well, what's he doing? He's, he's doing penance. He's at self-abnegation. He's, he's standing up to his need for comfort and luxury and convenience. And he's proving that he's, uh, he's a real devotee of God. He's doing it all for God. You give up sex. You're celibate? Oh, unbelievable. Wow. That's really holy. How could you give up sex? Sex is the greatest, most wonderful thing that ever happened. Huh? That's how worldly people think. They think sex is the highest high. It's sort of sad, really. You know. So they've got sex would have been, oh, you gave up sex? You can do it without sex? You must be a saint. Well, I didn't want to say that, but. <laughs> so, so, so in the in the second stage of bhakti, that's karma yoga. This is what? What do you do? You st you you pray to Ishwar, not for Ishwar's stuff, mind you. You're not interested in the stuff. You're better than that. You're better than those worldly materialists who are big in Ishwara for stuff. What do you do? You pray for to Ishwara for the desire to resist your the strength to resist your desires. Because you know, it's, oh, you're a strong, brave person. Uh, you see, I mean. Not really. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> See the vanity that comes from that? Huh? But it's a good thing. Because if you can stand up to your desires, then what? Then you're halfway there. We all want to have our cake and eat it too, right? That's a, that's the Jeevas. That, that's the Osho deal. Remember Osho? How do you remember? You guys, how many of you guys know Osho? Yeah. Well, not so many. Not so well. Not personal, but I was. Yeah, you were there. You, you, but you, you were absorbed in the Buddha, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Osho was a teacher that said that uh, you could be absorbed in the Buddha. You know, Zorba, You know who Zorba was? Zorba was a, a fictional character in uh, a novel by Nikos Kazantzakis called Zorba the Greek. 
And Zorba was the original party animal. Uh, Zorba, you know, he was the number one party animal, man. He indulged his desires, believe me, you know. And he went at it just like with total gusto. And, and of course, he was always so emotional and screwed up and depressed. But Osho said, so Osho said, if you want to get God, then you get to be Zorba the Buddha. What? Because the Buddha was just the opposite, right? The Buddha was a renunciate. The, the Buddha, you know, he, he, he was, he totally, he, he denied the flesh. He, he did the most, he was a, pen, a penitent. So Osho said, no, 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 you gotta, you gotta do both. You get to be Zorba and the Buddha. So of course, the Zorba part loved the idea of being a Buddha, right? Because the Buddha idea justified all of its sensuous impulses. That was all. So he became, Osho became incredibly popular. There were hundreds of thousands of people followed him because as, as one, as one uh, the women I met, I, I asked many, many, I met hundreds of them over the years. And I always asked them, well, what? What 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 did Osho do for you? He said, "Well, he gave us permission to do what our parents said we couldn't do and what shouldn't do." In other words, indulge yourself, because your parents said, "No, you got to get a job and go to work and be a good little person and you know collect money and do all this stuff and 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 you you shouldn't waste your time chasing all those lower impulses." And and Gosha said, "Yeah, you can do both." You can have your cake and you can eat it too. And of course, millions of people came to, they loved that idea. But the fact is, you can't. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You gotta, you know, if you're gonna succeed in this, you gotta want one thing and you gotta go for it and be consistent and hang in there till you understand what it is. That's all, that's what he's saying. So these people, they know that principle and they're not trying to fool themselves by pretending they're spiritual. Understand? That doesn't mean you have to deny. It means you have to what? As Swamiji said, you have to sin intelligently. Yeah. <laughs> sin, to sin intelligently. What? <laughs> they're pretty clever, huh? Uh, first time I heard that, we, I was flying with Swamiji and and, uh, and another uh, devotee. This was back in the days of the sexual revolution. And of course, everybody was, you know, sex and spirituality was a big issue then. Osho solved it. He just said, you can have them both. But, but, and there was a woman with me and we, we, we got off the plane in Guam. We were flying to Hong Kong. And the plane had to refuel in Guam. It's an island in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, we had refuel, and we all got off. So, I mean, we went and sat in the lounge, the airport. It was a small airport. And with Swami, he always had satsang. He didn't make small talk. So she, she, there was only me and him and her. And, and she asked him, she said, well, because she was considering going to Vedanta, into Vedanta. She eventually ended up with Swami Dayananda and became one of his number one disciples. And she still is a great teacher of Vedanta now. She teaches traditional Vedanta. 
but she, she, she was worried about the sex thing because everybody was into sex in those days. And so she asked him, well, uh, what about sex? I mean, if I'm going to be, if I'm going to commit myself to Vedanta, what about sex? And of course, what she, because he's a sannyasi and he never had sex. See, my teachers never had sex with women. They never had them. None of my teachers ever touched a woman. I know, I understand, it's hard to understand, but if you go to India, it's a whole different ballgame system. And so, of course, she's expecting, because he's a sannyasi, that he, you know, he's going to say, no, you can't get, get moksha without, unless you're celibate. And he says, uh, uh, he said, no, you should sin intelligently. That means what? Don't repress your desires and don't indulge them. Hmm? As you repress them, you create a huge subconscious tension. And if you indulge them, you create vasanas, which could cause huge subconscious disturbance. So he said, you should be intelligent about it. And, and I'll throw the dog a bone once in a while when it's hungry. Don't feed it a lot of bones, but give it a bone once in a while. Let it chew on a little bit, you know. And, and get a little, give it a little bit of enjoyment and then stop it. Calm down and, and, you know, and stand up in your own strength, right? So forth and so on. The Buddha also had that teaching. He, after, he'd, after, he'd, uh, after he'd denied all of his impulses for so long, he finally came up with what that was called the Madhyamika. That means the middle way. He, huh? He said, he says, don't do too much either way. Don't, de don't deny too much and don't indulge too much. But uh, he said, narrow is the, path to, uh, is the path to truth. Narrow is a razor's edge. You can easily fall off it. But that doesn't mean you don't get to be a human being and keep on going either. <coughs> that doesn't mean you have, So that's the idea here. Uh, sage, sage four. Oh, stage three, we talked about that. Then, then your personal deity. <coughs> if, you can, <coughs> if you can get into it, it's a great practice, but you needn't do it if you can do karma yoga. And four, worship of everything. What's that? That's called Vishwatswarupa, worship everything as a self. And that includes what? Not just the good stuff, but the bad stuff. That's stage four. And when you can worship everything, the good parts of yourself and the bad parts of yourself equally, <clears throat> then what do you do? <coughs> you get the fruit of your devotion. You get non-dual devotion. How? Through jnana yoga, through Vedanta. You discover what? That there is only one reality. <coughs> its nature is love, and I am it. evolution of devotional knowledge. <clears throat> First stage, God in one form, that's the personal God. <clears throat> God in many a forms, right? <coughs> the world. And three, an imperceptible but immediately known God. That's called Aparoksha Ishwara. 
that means myself. So that's the state. Very nice. We haven't time to, to do every single verse in the whole thing, obviously. We've only got a few days. What day is today? Tuesday. Is this Tuesday already? Oh, my God. <laughs> then we only got two more days, right? Two more. Jesus. Seems like time flies when you're having fun, doesn't it? <laughs> and no skipping. Okay, we know about no skipping. We've already covered that. Eleven. Uh, one second. Are this five stages? Huh? Stages linear, or are the five stages non-linear? Like, do you, do they go from one to five, or do they also go some back and forth and? Yeah, you can go back and forth, but but yeah, it's, it tends to be linear. But if if at any stage you're having a problem, uh, then you it means you haven't uh, you haven't uh, you haven't resolved the preceding stage because the, the stages follow normally. Understand? You can practice karma yoga and yana yoga together. I said this earlier, huh? How? And and in the first and second stages of karma yoga, well, how do you practice karma yoga and yana yoga? One, you study the scripture. Huh? You, you develop your intellect, your intellectual, your knowledge base. You understand what satyamitti is and how the world's created and all that sort of thing. Huh? And at the same time, you work on your emotions with karma yoga. And the values are a good combination of both. What? Values are, are a good combination of both. Yeah, well, we're going to get to the values. That's one thing I want to get to here. I'm kind of... Uh, uh, because in here, uh, yana yoga is uh, is an analysis, is not just what? Is not just... Oh, it's the wrong chart. Is uh, <laughs> not just shravana, manana, and nididhyasana. In other words hearing, reflect, reflecting, and assimilating, but it's what? It's knowledge of values. You have to do, you have to make a fearless moral inventory in Yana Yoga. Do you get that from any of the teachers? Modern teachers? No, you don't, do you? No. Because there's only certain values that are conducive to moksha, and there are certain values that are definitely not conducive to moksha. <coughs> Maybe not all of your values that are conducive to moksha are completely assimilated. Maybe they're only partially assimilated. Understand? So, huh? So I'm going to have to go make a list of the. I have to like expose my values by looking at them in terms of this list and determining what my values actually are. Because if I just ask you, are you going for moksha, everybody's going to raise their hand. Yeah, I'm going for moksha, you bet. Yay, Ramji, that's why I'm here. I came to get moksha. Right? Okay, well, let's talk about your values then. Let's see what your values are. And as soon as we start to get into your values, we discover there's a lot of values, there's values for things, a lot of things other than moksha. There's values for things that are what? We're going to disqualify you for moksha. So, huh? So I've got to make a fearless moral inventory. Yadi, part of yoga is what? Looking at my values. 
and we'll, we'll listen to them. In fact, we're, there's a great uh, little book by Swami Dayananda. It's called The Value of Values. It's based upon Bhagavad, the values that are listed in the Gita. In other words, it's, it's he unfolded it. And I have uh, enumerated those values in, in, in a slightly different language, giving him full credit for, and, and actually just copied a bunch of his words and quoted him extensively in both this book and the Yoga of the Three Energies. If you put those two together, all the values are there. And I've got a friend now who's about to, who we're about to publish his, his Gita, which is uh, Bhagavad Gita commentaries, Rory Mackay. He's one of our teachers. And he's now putting together a book called The Value of Values that include both the values in here and the values in the Yoga of Three Energies. So you'll get a really, you know, uh, clear, simple, modern, straightforward uh, list of all those values and the discrimination of, of those values. Because <clears throat> you're going to have to go through it. There's a lot more to it than just this, this doctrine that we're teaching here. Huh? There's a lot of sadhana. You're going to see. We're just getting into the sadhana here. Pretty soon you're going to, it's going to tell you how do you get, how do you practice Bhakti, how do you practice yoga? Bhakti yoga, how do you practice the yoga of love? It's going to tell you here shortly. That's why I was lamenting. Oh, we only got two more days? We're going to have to step it up. <laughs> Should we have a midnight session? Sure. <laughs> sure. Outside, full moon. Huh? Full moon, yeah, full moon full session. Full moon party. <laughs> And so, what? Now, a one pointed devotee, a person who only wants moksha, it says, What? Devotees with one pointed devotion, this is verse 11, devotees with one pointed devotion perform, what do they do? They perform only worldly and religious duties that are in harmony with Dharma. So, this is the values topic, isn't it? Huh? Dharma is about following values, having the right values. Understand? Uh, and okay so then the question comes up next uh, sh should a person should a non-dual should a person who has non-dual love in other words these non-dual devotees who have non-dual love these free people uh, are they beyond dharma do, do they have to follow dharma of course they do. No, they don't. They do it no, they don't. Well, they do it naturally. Uh, they, they, yeah, that's right. But we've got both the right answer and the wrong answers. So we have, to, <laughs> we have to sort out which is the right answers and which is the wrong answers and why. That's Vedanta. Which is the right answer, which is the wrong answer, why this is the wrong answer, why this is the right answer. It's as a, a matter of fact, they do follow Dharma. As a right? matter of fact. Yeah. But they don't have to follow Dharma, do they? Huh? Because, huh? They don't have to follow the moral code. Because if they have to follow the moral code, then are they free? No, they're not free, are they? Free means you don't have to do anything. Free means you can do this or you can do that. Free means you can break Dharma. Now, this is a really big problem in the modern spiritual world, isn't it? This, this is your crazy wisdom gurus. Does anybody know about them? 
Huh? Oh, good. Well, I won't even tell you what they are then. You guys are so innocent. They're out of fashion. Yeah, the crazy wisdom. Thank God they're out of fashion. Yeah, the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, we, well, we, crazy wisdom gurus, they're, they're basic. They're, this is what they said. They said, because I'm free, I'm free to do the wrong thing. And, of course, it was always like, steal your money and, and have sex with you. That was that was the extent of their imagination. That was, huh? that, they just had the most ordinary pedestrian Bostons that everybody had. Sex and money? Come on, come up with something a little more interesting, please. But you only want sex and you only want money? Where's your imagination? There's got to be something better than that. Huh? So this this was their this was their argument because I'm free and and so they abused and used all kinds of people and they convinced the people that it was good for them that they be abused used and abused by the guru because it was setting them free of their bourgeois attachment to values. That's called crazy wisdom. Yeah, it's crazy. It's not wisdom, and it's crazy. Huh? It's, to it's totally self-serving, self-centered ignorance is what it is. So, so why do why do does it, why does an enlightened person follow Dharma? Well, why not? Huh? If you're free, you're free to follow Dharma, and this is the reason they do. One is to protect society. Huh? In other words, to serve society, because a, 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 a moral Dharma, that's a problem we're having right now in America, isn't it? The big issue with President Trump is his lack of morality. He's actually not doing anything, it's actually technically illegal. Actually. But he's, 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 a, he's, he's, a, a, he's an ad Dharma. He's breaking every, you know, he's just a, a very immoral person. He has no sense of morality. And he's not a good role model for society. So they find now that the kids in school are bullies. The bullies in school getting more and more, and they're bullying more and more. Because the president bully. They see the president bushing people around, insulting people, and so they, they think, well, that's okay to do because he's the president. If the president can, can beat up people and push people around and say nasty, nasty things, I can do that. So, <coughs> yeah. so if, you know, if, if, he, if, he, if a, a person is an enlightened person, what do they do? They protect society. They inculcate, they model Krishna said at the Gita in the Arjuna in the Gita, you're a role model. These are role models, these people. And what do they do? They 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 serve the higher values in society, and that makes a cohesive society and a happy society where everybody's practicing Dharma. So they definitely follow the rules. And why? Because, here's the reason. Because they have nothing to gain by breaking them. Now, a person who says, I, I, I break the rules, what? And I have nothing to gain, then if you have nothing to gain by following the rules, you also have nothing to gain by breaking them, do you? So why are you breaking the rules? 
Yeah. Since following the rules is what? Much easier than breaking the rules. <coughs> so uh, then what's in the second the second region? The second region. For uh, for the protection of their uh, of the scripture. You you have such huh? What what is it? Why would you protect the scripture? Because the scripture is the thing that what that sets you free, and that's the greatest benefit to people. And so, if a person's a scripture is teaching this, and they're and they're what and they're they're cutting corners, they're lying and cheating and stealing and injuring people in the name of God. You're going to give God a bad name, aren't you? That's the problem being a guru these days. Because there's so many bad gurus out there that people assume that every guru is a bad guru, particularly Vedic people like me. Well, but look at, I mean, I could tell you the whole list of all these yogis that have fallen down. God, it's amazing. I should really write a book about it. It's just, it's just an endless list. Not just big ones, but lots of small ones too. And the third is to prevent yourself from falling. Now, not that you can fall, but your life becomes corrupted. And your jiva becomes what? Oh, yeah, you know you're the self, but your jiva becomes what? Uh, corrupted. Your vasanas return, and you just act out your vasanas. Yeah. Huh? On this point, I really don't understand. If you really got it, you know that the other is you. So there is no way of cheating, uh, ripping, misusing, abuse, anything. So either you have one has understood, and then you have understood that the other, the object, the other is you, everything is you. Yeah. So there is no space for this behavior. I, I see. Well, if your knowledge is firm, yeah, but then you, but then you have to live that from then on. Yeah, you can't say my knowledge is firm and therefore I don't I'm free. I don't have to do anything because if you don't keep following Dharma, you'll lose your Dharma samskara and then you'll revert to what? You'll revert to the old samskaras and you'll just keep huh? That's the point. So you keep living a moral life. You don't have to live a moral life. It's not going to take away your self-knowledge. It's going to take away your dignity as a person. It's going to take away, it's going to ruin God's reputation and the scripture's reputation. And it's going to personally ruin your reputation. Where are these people now? They're humiliated. What about Swami Satyarananda? He was such a noble, beautiful man. He dies a miserable old man, kicked out of his own ashram, started one of the biggest yoga centers in the world. Beautiful man. The same old story, the ladies. Amrit Desai, etc., etc., etc. Osho, down the train, this whole Andrew Cohen. Where are they now? They're all sad, pathetic old people living unhappy, unfulfilled lives. Why? Because they didn't live up to who, who they were. They're, they're, they didn't, they're, huh? Every single day you got to do the right thing. 
You don't just get to claim you're enlightened and then just do whatever you want. Understand? That's a free person. Because your enlightenment's not just for you, is it? Why, why do you think that your moksha, your enlightenment happens, assuming that it's a happening, when it does? What, huh? Because you can be, you can be completely qualified. You can have a, a a completely qualified teacher. You can have an impersonal means of knowledge, huh? You can have all the circumstances right, and you can you can, uh, and you can. It can take you ten years or fifteen years to get moksha. Why? Because your moksha is part of Ishwara's plan for what? For the world. And you will only be given, you will only understand this teaching when it's appropriate for the world to hear your, to see you, to hear you. To hear this teaching from you. You're being groomed by Ishwar to perpetuate the tradition. And that all depends upon what? On the circumstances, your circumstances and the culture or the society in which you live. <clears throat> so the fourth factor is always God's grace or Ishwar's will for this final assimilation of, of, the, of the knowledge. Understand? So is your enlightenment just for you or is it for the whole world? It's for everybody you come in contact with. Ishwar is not just... Huh? And if you're still selfish, if you're still self-centered, huh? It's not going to work. Ishwar is going to withhold it because Ishwar wants pure people, pure-minded, holy people, <coughs> to keep the scripture clear, clean, to uplift the societies, to save the world, to keep the world what huh? on on the right path. Look where the world's going now. Look at if you follow the you follow the the if you study what's going on now the whole world's getting more and more and more corrupt. The the the, the president of the United States and, and many of his people deny that the that they're global warming. They deny the pollution of the thing. Trump is taking off what? What's he doing? He's taking off the restrictions on automobiles on internal combustion engines, even washing machines. He wants to remove the European-style washers that use a lot less energy and waste a lot less water and give it back, get back the old American ones that used a lot of electricity and a lot of water and, and clean your clothes in 30 minutes. He's, uh, he's, he's, try, he's trying to undo all of the environmental regulations that have, have been put in over the years. That's a demon. You want that kind of person run, running huh? in charge? Of, huh? You can see where the world's going. And he's supported by uh, you know, 60 million people. Support him fanatically. Hmm? It's like Ravana or Duryodhana or one of those people. He's like a Ravana. It's all a moral, moral issue. So, 
So understand, you know, that that an enlightened person is is what it is, and you're so grateful to Ishwar that you follow Ishwar's laws. What? Because Ishwar gave you that moksha. And he gave us huh? Donald Trump. Pardon? He gave us Donald Trump. Yeah, and, he, and at the same time, he gave us Donald Trump. Wow. What a What why is it? There shouldn't be moksha. What? <laughs> what? Yeah, because enlightened persons are there for Trump. Pardon? Yeah. Enlightened persons are also there for Trump, she says. Yeah, otherwise, uh, for what? Enlightened persons are there for Trump? Yeah, because there is hope that maybe one day Trump will be changed because of enlightened persons. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, that's true. She's saying because of the enlightened people doing a, making a contribution, yeah. they could make a, a yeah. change. Well, that's what's because happening, isn't it? Because that dharma generates dharma. But you want to be on this, huh? But, but this is a dharma shastra. This is a scripture on Dharma. Right? So we're, we're, we're on the side of the Dharma. We want to do what's right. We want to make the society beautiful and holy and pure and clean. Ishwara's plan. Yeah. yeah. Donald Trump is a power for the alternate. Pardon? <laughs> Donald Trump is a power for all the other powers. Yeah, he's a symbol of the Ad Dharma. Like the Gita. Like in the Gita, just like in the Gita. So. so it says so he says here, firmly commit yourself to maintaining an ethical code even after your devotion to Ishwara is firm. Because why why does he say? Why should you do that? Because as long as the notion of doership is present, there is danger of a fall. See, when you realize yourself, if you say, I realize that I'm the self, you say, I, I'm a self-realized person, when you say that. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Duality. Uh, Duality. Uh, Duality. Uh, Duality. That means there's still a doer, isn't there? There's the one who realized, that's a doer. He's claiming, he's saying, I realize the self, I am the self. So the notion of duality is still there, isn't it? Huh? Now, that's called the fifth stage of realization, is I am the self. There's seven stages of realization. The fifth stage is what? I am the self. This fourth stage is, there is a self. And the fifth stage is, I am the self. So usually you hear about the self, and then you want to know what it is and experience it. And then you get into the spiritual world, and then you realize, I am the self. So that's the fifth stage. And you say, I'm self-realized. But there, you're still duality, there's still the doer there. Now, what does the doer do after he's realized the self? This is the question. Huh? He what? Sadhana. Yeah, he does sadhana. He, uh, sadhana. 
You realize I'm the self, and the self is free. Okay, so I'm not free to do so. I'm free to not do sadhana. I'm free to what? To follow that dharma. Right? If you're free, if you know you're the self, then you're free. This is what they're doing at that stage, the crazy wisdom people. Well, they shouldn't be doing that because the doer's still there. Huh? And, and moksha is the seventh stage, which is what? The elimination of the doer. The notion that I'm a doer. So as if the doer survives self-realization, and it, it, it won't survive if you're totally qualified, because then when you realize the self, you'll immediately gain perfect satisfaction, which is actually moksha for the doer. Huh? Understand? Then what, what happens? You will, you will, con- you will continue to act as a doer, mm-hmm. won't you? Mm-hmm. Now, what are you supposed to do then? Do anything you want? No, he said, don't do anything you want. Why? Because if you keep doing anything you want, you'll just keep, uh, you'll just keep uh, reinforcing the notion that you're a doer, yes. mm-hmm. won't you? So what should you do? You need to remove the sense of doership. And how do you do that? You keep doing your sadhana, huh? and it removes those what? Those obstacles that what? That are keeping you as doing. In other words, they're called pratibandikas, or deep samskaras, but mostly desires, mostly patterns of behavior that, that you learned when you were a child. And that you never never were exposed by your sadhana. Subconscious, unconscious patterns uh, that were never exposed by the teaching or the sadhana. And those what cause you cause you what? Cause you problems after you're hundred percent convinced you're the self. So to get rid of those problems, you have to keep doing it. That's called Nididyasana. Before it's called karma yoga and jnana yoga. Afterwards it's called nididyasana. But nididyasana is just requalifying. In other words, doing karma yoga and jnana yoga and bhakti yoga and meditation and doing all your spiritual work just like you did before. In other words, before enlightenment I chopped wood and carried water. After enlightenment I chopped wood and carried water. You just continue on. You do your sadhana, that's all. You don't, you, don't, you don't have a special status huh? <laughs> because you realize yourself. All you've done is removed ignorance, but you haven't changed the person. The person is still there, and the person still has these problems. So what? Now I've got to, with the knowledge, I have to clear out, clear out those problems. It's much easier to clear out the problems when you know you're the self than before you do know out yourself. So that, that, that process can proceed because you have that confidence that I am the self. At the same time, you acknowledge the mitya part of yourself, the part that is what? Produce, still producing problems for, for you and the world. If you're producing problems for yourself, in other words, obstacles, anger, desire, and those sorts of things are still in you, it's going to leak out and affect other people, isn't it? So, so what do you do? You just continue on until that sense that I'm doing disappears. And there's no reason to do because the vasanas, the samskaras, the deep tendencies have been what? Have been effaced by your sadhana. Yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodha. You've removed or eroded those what? Those chitta, vrittis 
that are disturbing you, your mind. They don't disturb the self, they disturb your mind. But moksha is freedom from, uh, freedom for the mind. <laughs> but the mind should did merge into the self. It should become pure like the self. Well, it's not going to become pure unless you purify it. So you purify it after, after self-realization. Understand? So that's the idea here. And that prevents enlightenment sickness. Enlightenment sickness is co-opting the enlightenment and saying that I, the jiva, am enlightened. <laughs> that I am the self. Well, the jiva is the jiva, the self is the self, and you have to understand what, in what sense the jiva is the self and what sense it isn't the self. Understand? So, yes, uh, Thomas. Yeah. I have a question. I hope it fits in. A, you said somewhere, somehow, uh, Dharma fits, you know, Dharma trumps moksha. Dharma trumps moksha, yeah. Because we're talking about Trump and... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Dharma's more important than moksha. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, <laughs> what I meant by that was that a person who says they're enlightened but doesn't behave in a dharmic fashion, who doesn't follow dharma, right, what good is his moksha? Huh? Right. What good is it? A person who behaves like an idiot, and then gets enlightened and continues to behave like an idiot. What what good does that do? Either him or anybody else. But a person who doesn't know who they are, who lives a moral and righteous life, is way superior to a person who says they're enlightened or who knows that they're the self and doesn't live a righteous life. This, hmm? Yeah. So, you know, give me an, a normal, honest, everyday person who, who lives an honest life and, 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 and follows, you know, is a moral, decent person to one of these spiritual people who, who talks a big enlightenment story and yet behind the scenes is cutting all kinds of corners, breaking the rules and so forth and so on, and saying they're hypocrites, right? Oh, those people. <clears throat> so, so, and he says, for he's talking about these these non-dual devotees, these fully self-actualized people. He says, for as long as the body lasts, it remains till the day you die. <laughs> this isn't like a big vacation. It is a vacation, but it's not like a vacation. <laughs> For as long as the body lasts, one should minimally, minimally engage in worldly activities and only perform those actions necessary to sustain the body. These are the sannyasis. You're a sannyasi. You just, you just do the bare minimum to keep your body going and that's it. You let your karma burn out. Understand? You don't add more karma onto the top. Why? Because you have nothing to gain by adding karma, do you? Huh? Understand? That you're a renunciate. Once you understand this, what? You don't take up new activities. Now, in karma yoga, you renounce what? The results of the actions, 
But in sannyas, he renounces activities himself. It's karma sannyas. There's karma sannyas. There's jnana karma sannyas. Huh? And there's karma yoga, which is renunciation of the fruits. Karma pala sannyas. Karma sannyas is what? I renounce activities. Jnana karma sannyas is I renounce the doer uh, with knowledge of what that I'm the self. So I understand I'm not the doer. And I don't identify as the doer. Yeah. If that happens, then automatically you're a karma sannyas because your activities are reduced to the bare minimum. That's what he's saying here. He said there are certain bare, bare things. You know, you brush your teeth, you eat, you feed your body, and you take a poop when you need to take a poop. And, and you know, that's if I take a walk, do a little exercise and that sort of thing. And you just maintain a simple, minimal lifestyle, right? Because you're on the way out. <laughs> anyway, huh? Isn't it so sad to see these guys, huh? Still, still trying to get stuff when they're sixty or seventy or eighty years old. Still trying to like get stuff out of the world. Huh? So, huh? I, I had a friend. She was a night nurse in in London in old folks' home. I know you've heard this story before. You hate it, right? <laughs> my my wife my wife always says, God, get some new stories, James. I'm so tired of listening to the same stories. Anyway. Anyway. You okay, I won't tell it. <laughs> no, I mean, there's people there's people who don't want to hear it again. It's really funny. It's really funny. It's a great story, but I won't do it because I don't you shouldn't hear it. You are good. Actually, the repetition is also funny. You want us to back you, huh? You want us to back you? Yeah, I do. An enlightened person is like a person with Alzheimer's. Exactly. I can't, you know, it's as funny to me every time I tell it. You know, I had a friend, his, his, his wife, his mother had Alzheimer's. He invited me. I guess I know this story. <laughs> I won't tell I won't tell that one either. <laughs> Sorry, I tell you a story later. <laughs> I forgot. You have Alzheimer's. Yes. I don't know. I forgot what we were talking about. <laughs> you said karma sanyasi and yana karma sanyasi. Yeah, and? Girlfriend. But I was going to tell a story. What was the story? The night nurse. The night nurse story. Okay, here it is. So she's a night nurse. And and uh, she's a spiritual woman, and, and she does a great job because she only only has to do she only has to uh, see that the good the old dears are in bed and the lights are out, and then basically she doesn't have to do anything. You know, if, they, if one of them rings a buzzer or somebody, you know, has a bad dream, then she'll get up and make them feel comfortable or something. 
and one of, one of her job, so then she reads the scripture and, and just enjoys the silence. She liked the job. She got paid well and everything's good. So one of the duties is to pat down the bed huh, of the old lady, you know, the old man and the old ladies, because, you know, they, they're incontinent and they pee the bed and yet they don't want them sleeping in their own pee all night. So, the, you know, after they're asleep, uh, she'll go down and, and she'll pat the bed a little bit, right? See if it's wet. And if it's wet, then, then she'll roll them over. They, they can actually keep make the bed and put on a new sheet when you're in it. They roll it on one side, take the sheet, then roll it on the other side, put the sheet like that. It's like that. So there's this woman, and she's 92, and she's asleep, and my friend reaches under the covers, and, and she's patting the bed, and she accidentally touches her on the butt. <laughs> and the woman wakes up and says, Leave off, John! Huh? If you're still interested, in, if you still have sex in your mind at 92, you're definitely, you're going to be, you know the one about the, you know the, you know the rabbit in the, Arizona? Yes. Okay, I, I, won't, I won't tell that one. That's a really funny story. That's a really funny story. But no, we we got to get serious here. We're talking to Texas. to come back tomorrow. Tomorrow. Tomorrow you can get that one. So, so that means what? Live a simple life. That's all. Maybe you can publish a storybook. Huh? It's <laughs> <laughs> a storybook. Spiritual jokes. Swami Dayananda published a book about enlightenment laughter. It's published. For oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's sold out already. Which, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty cool. I didn't know about that. Yeah. There's a huge resource there, yeah. uh, you know. There, uh, then, then he talks about the different views of uh, uh, non-dual devotion. He says, there, verse 13, there are various definitions of the characteristics of devotion due to different points of view. He says, sage Vyasadeva says that uh, it is expressed by the performance of ritual worship. In other words, doing ritual worship, whatever it is. Chanting, worship prayer, kirtan, bhajan, all that, that sort of thing. Huh? So that's a sign of devotee, of devotional worship, he says. Uh, satsang, number 17, spiritual discussion. Satsang is an expression of devotion. So this is, we're practicing bhakti here. Huh? We're we're having a discussion about huh, about the Lord, the glories of the Lord, what the Lord is, and so forth and so on. How to worship the Lord, and so forth and so on. So this uh, this means you guys have bhakti for what? For the Lord. It says then what? Shandilya says devotion is perpetual delight in the self, always being happy with the self. And what? Narada says. Devotion is expressed by sanctifying all activities and by, uh, huh? oh, in other words, karma yoga. So 
Karma yoga is you sanctify your activities. What is it? You make your activities pure and holy. How do you do that? You offer them to Ishwara. Yeah. That makes them sacred. You're taking a worldly activity and you're converting it into a sacred activity. By what? By offering it to God. And you do that every day. That's karma yoga. Well, every single action is offered in a spirit of devotion to Ishwar. Okay? Beautiful, huh? So you don't have to run off to an ashram. You don't have to go to a physical temple, do you? It, your, this life itself is the temple, and every action you're doing is what? You're a worshiper, you're a devotee, and you offer to the Lord this action. And then the action becomes pure. It's out of your hands, and it's in Ishwara's hands, and the result is good, because whatever result Ishwara gives is good, because Ishwara is looking after everyone here and everything here. So, so no as problem. A, as a thief, before... Huh? As a thief, before you go on to stealing something, you do your puja, yeah. uh, you do your ritual, yeah. and then you sanctify it, and the Lord looks after the thief. He, 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 he helps you not get caught. Or, if you need to get caught, he, he sends somebody to catch you, and then he puts you in jail, which is good for you. There's another story. I got lots of stories. <laughs> you guys say, well, I got great stories, but I, I don't want to, you know, waste your time. Yeah, that's a great story. I was going to tell that story. Well, yeah, it's a beautiful story. I, I was in uh, I was in Delhi one time. I waited for a a plane to back to the to uh, England. No, but, no, and and uh, I read that I was reading the newspaper, and there was an article in the newspaper, and it was very interesting because the government was was interviewing uh, women criminals who were in prison, and they wanted to find out why the women were committing crimes in the ninth month of their pregnancy so and and giving birth in jail and, and the reason they want they were irritated because they wanted the women to go to a hospital and pay you know and pay the doctors they didn't want the government to have all the expense of, of you know of having a doctor and a midwife and the nurse and all that stuff there to look after these women and their babies when they're in jail. So they figured that the the, the women were just trying to save money and it was pissing them off because they had to, huh you know how criminals are they always gaming everything and and so they they were they were trying to prevent this from happening. So they interviewed this woman, and this is what the women said. They won't believe this. You won't believe this. They said, no, we're criminals. We can get the money. It's not the problem, really. We just steal it or shoot somebody or kidnap somebody. We'll get the money. Don't worry. It's not the money. They said, well, what is it? They said, well, you see, the thing is, as you know, our parents are criminals, 
our grandparents are criminals. Our whole caste is a criminal caste. That's all we do is we do crime. That's our job. That's our duty. That's our swa dharma. And our children are all going to be criminals. For sure. We're, we are, that, that's what we do. And since our children are going to be criminals, our children are going to spend a lot of time in jail. And because they're going to spend a lot of time in jail, we would like them to be born in jail so they feel comfortable here when they come. (laughs) 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 That's Dharma. They're doing their Dharma. Looking after their babies. Can, can you, huh? How kind. Huh? You see, God's in the criminals too, right? See that? See the kindness, the love for the children is there in the, huh? Looking after their children. Nice. And then, what does he say? Narada says, devotion is expressed by sanctifying all activities. We said that. You make you you purify. You turn a worldly activity into a spiritual benefit, into good karma, into punya karma, by what? By offering it to God. You don't have to go do special spiritual activities. You don't have to go to a to a temple and and ring the bell and, and light a candle and say a prayer. You don't have to do that. You can do that. That's good too. That's fine. You just what? You just change your attitude toward action, and you instead of thinking of it as for you, you offer it to the Lord. Understand? And 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 uh, and then what? Then the karma accrues to the Lord, and whatever comes back to you, you're very grateful for. And you say, "Oh, the Lord's teaching me a lesson here." If it's bad karma, then you say, "Oh, that's the Lord's will." And if it's good karma, you say, "That's the Lord's grace." But you're happy to get the Lord's grace or the Lord's will. Either way, it doesn't matter, because you're you're communicating with the Lord that way. You're getting harmonized with the Lord. You're starting to understand what Dharma is, because as we said. Ishwara is Dharma Raja, the king of Dharma. You're getting in harmony with the law, with God's law. And you want to be in harmony with God's law. That's the point. God's law supersedes man's law. And what? And what? This is, I love this one. This is the fish out of water. He says, and, and, and by what? Intense anguish upon forgetting the beloved. Beloved means the Lord. If you forget yourself, even for a minute, uh, a a devotee, a non-dual devotee, what will he feel like? Like a fish out of water. He'll be gasping for air. He'll feel miserable. Intensely, tense anguish. Because there's so much joy in what? In loving God. That one second, one thought away from God is painful for that person. Beautiful. And then what is what is Narada say? He says, Dr- devotion, we're not asked to choose. He says, direct 
devotion is correctly described in each of this way. And then he he discusses the gopis of Raja. Raja. So it's a lovely story. That the story. Have you read the the Srimad Bhagavatam? The stories of Krishna. They probably have it here. I'm sure they have it. It's it's the Bible of the devotees. It's the Bhagavad Gita of the devotees. It's called the Bible of the Bhaktas. And it uh, it's the stories or the leelas of Krishna, which are Puranic stories which explain uh, Vedanta in the form of these Puranic tales. Beautiful stories. Uh, and uh, we won't, we're not going to take those up. No. Because I, I want to get to the values issues and other issues, and we've only got two days left, I think, huh? Yeah. Huh? You can always jump to the values. Pardon? You can always skip and jump to the values. Jump? No, I don't want to jump. I, I want to <laughs> No, because then he says, even in the case of the gopis, I won't tell you the whole story, because it's, so, it's so beautiful, you can get lost in it. We... Uh, when I was with Swami Abedananda, well, I don't. He shows up here. He, he was a he was a total non-dual bhakta. He was a great incarnation of one of the great sages from uh, the 16th century, and he was a non-dual bhakta. He was a what they call a rebirth yogi. He had been here before, and he reincarnated here as a fully realized person. And uh, and he he was a great singer great chanter, and uh, he, he he taught the Srimad Bhagavatam, and it was the most amazing thing. And every day we, we, we studied the Srimad Bhagavatam, and we told these stories, and what the meaning was of all of these beautiful stories. Mm-hmm. So really, the bhakti, the bhakti yoga is really beautiful. It's really exciting and interesting and entertaining and informative. It's not like Vedanta, which is kind of formal and, and, and impersonal. It's very juicy and warm and sexy and, and, and entertaining. It's really lovely. Uh, it's about, he says, now, even in the case of the gopis, what, a gopi means what? A gopi means gopi. It's it's a it's a compound. Go means light, and p means the senses. Pi means the senses. So it means a person who drinks the Lord, drinks consciousness or drinks God through their senses. What does that mean? What's that mean? They drink. They drink. So you, see, you see only God. Yeah, yeah. They, all of the material world they see is God. Your senses are 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 the are the are the instruments for what for experiencing the material world, <coughs> and they drink God through their senses. They don't drink material through their senses. They drink God through their senses. In other words, they know that the material world is nothing but God. Also, they have no distinction between spirit and matter. That's a gopi. That's a fully self-actualized person. And he says, even the gopis, one cannot criticizing them, criticizing them for forgetting the Lord's greatness. 
Now, there's two kinds of ways to to understand this. Uh, love in presence and love in absence. Huh? Now, if you love an object, say your ch- your ch- your children. Um, and your child dies or gets lost, disappears, you don't know, gets kidnapped. Do you still love your child? Yeah. If your child kicks you and, and, and commits murder, do you still love your child? Yeah. Yes. No matter what happens, what? You love your child, huh? So, so you, that means what? You don't need that person there, that person's body there, to love them. Unconditional love. It's unconditional love. That's what they're talking about. So what? Uh, so even then, you can be what? You can be what? You can. You can't criticize them for forgetting, because they love in the presence and they love in the absence. Understand? You know, when we love somebody, we want them there all the time. And if they don't, if they're not there all the time, we think, you know, they don't love us, or I can't love somebody who isn't there all the time because I need them all the time. But, huh? Their bodies. You may think you need their bodies there, huh? But you don't. It is not your their body you love anyway, is it? Is it? Huh? The body's only in the mind, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it? So what do you love is the thought of them, isn't it? And does the thought go away when their body's not there? No. You, you can even reduce it to you love the love. You love love. You love love, yeah, absolutely. Right. And you love them because their nature is love. You don't love them because of their body or their mind, do you? No. Is that what you love? Well, if you love their body, and if you love a person's body and mind and their qualities, what? You, and you're depending upon that for your happiness, you're going to be very disappointed when they're gone, aren't you? Mm-hmm. When they either physically die or when they're not physically present or when their <laughs> mind changes. What what if their mind changes about you and they don't want to be with you anymore? You stop loving them? No. (laughs) That's called unconditional love. Understand? Yeah, Cameron. When it says forgetting the Lord's greatness, does that mean that they forgot the Lord's greatness and that he was a cowherd and so they loved him for his appearance? What does... Hmm? No, that should be for forgetting that the Lord is great, i.e., the Lord's the self. Because if you love in absence, it's got to be the self you're loving, doesn't it? Isn't it? If you love the self, you only see the self everywhere. You know there's only the self. That's why the physical world is the self. But objects in the physical world are sometimes present and sometimes absent. Huh? So your love doesn't change depending upon the nature of the object. 
the behavior or the presence of object or the absence of the object or the behavior of it. If the kid kicks you, if your son, if your son or daughter kicks you, huh, you don't stop loving them. That's a bad little person. You should beat them up and throw them away. I don't love you. You got to love me. You have to love your mommy. You must love me. No, they don't even know any better, do they? They don't love you. They kick you. They don't love you. <laughs> is it? Kids don't know what pure love is. <laughs> really, they have to learn it. Huh? I know. I know. I understand how you feel about it. Oh, they couldn't. They're little innocent guys and stuff. They just love you because they have to love you. Bastards. Huh? They're terrible. They're little bastards. <laughs> They're full of likes and dislikes, and they love you when you give them what they want, yeah. and they hate your guts when you don't give them what they want. They don't care about you. They have no idea who you are. Huh? For you, they're just, for them, you're just what? You're just the one that feeds them and gives them what they want. What do they know about what you think or what you feel? This is why worshiping God as a parent in the sky is a big mistake. We're going to talk about that here. We're going to talk about the love, oh, the love games. <laughs> <laughs> the love games. The, looking at God as a big father or mother in the sky is not the way to go for moksha. That's totally contrary to the whole concept of moksha. And we'll explain why when we get to, we'll get to the love games. They don't know. If you worship God as a child, that's that's suitable for moksha. Understand? In other words, as a, as as God as your child, because parents have understanding and forbearance, and uh, and discrimination, whereas children have no forbearance and no understanding, and no discrimination. They're just little, you know, uncultivated little animals who want what they want when they want it, the way they want it, and if they don't, they just blow up and become emotional. That's all. Hmm? And, and then they come back and they say, they, they say, I'm sorry, Mommy. They weren't sorry, Mommy. They just wanted <laughs> they something else. They just the next thing, you know? Yeah, they just see the next thing. So they say, I'm sorry, Mommy. I didn't mean to. They I, didn't let's mean... have an ice cream. <laughs> right, let's have an ice cream. Yeah. And then Mommy said, it's okay, dear. Have an ice cream. <laughs> you got a mommy here who knows exactly what I'm talking about. I felt so sorry for my parents. <laughs> to get somebody like me, I was a little devil from the day I popped out of the womb. I can't believe I got such good luck with such good parents. It was unbelievable. <laughs> 